Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 16, When the Music Stops. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support and where you will be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to Manny for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And whether you're a member or not, you can still help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, co-workers, people at the bus stop. And please, give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. The more reviews we get, the more visible the show will become and the more people will be able to find it. I appreciate it. Last episode, we went along for the wild ride that was Abdallah's turbulent reign in Al-Andalus. And we saw just how easily the kingdom fragmented in the face of weak central power. And in hindsight, this political fragmentation would be a harbinger of events to come in the next few centuries. But that's for the future. This episode, we'll return to northern Iberia, where we will deal with the various children of Alfonso III and their game of musical chairs involving the three main kingdoms in the north. Now, the accounts concerning the sons of Alfonso III can get quite confusing, since they cover 15 very dramatic years, where a bunch of dudes who share about three names between them actively make and break alliances, along with backstabbing each other with dizzying speed. But I will try to keep things as straightforward and as simple as I can. And now, let's get started. Alfonso III died in the year 910, but by that time, he had already been deposed by his three sons, 
Garcia, Ordoño, and Fruela. By virtue of being the oldest son, Garcia stepped into the role of King of the Asturias, which at the time stretched from beyond the River Minho in Galicia all the way to the upper Ebro Valley in the northeast. He then made a decision that was to have a lasting impact on the dynamics of the northern realms. He moved the capital of the kingdom from its traditional location in Oviedo to the city of Leon. I think we can safely take this move as yet another sign of the increased confidence felt by the upper aristocracy in their local defenses. Even though by the time that Leon became the royal capital and was no longer on the front line, it was still in greater danger of being attacked by the Umayyads than, well, back in Oviedo. But Garcia probably felt the need to be closer to the border regions that had been rapidly expanding not only to have a more active hand in this expansion, but to keep a closer eye on the increasingly powerful nobility that had been reaping the benefits of conquest. We don't know exactly when this move occurred, but Garcia is the first of the siblings to be described in the charters as, quote, reigning in Leon, unquote. But his rule was rather short as the last document referring to him is dated to late 913. At the same time, charters referred to his younger brother Ordoño II as King in Galicia in 911. Now, even though it's not explicitly stated in the sources, it's generally assumed that the expanded Asturian realm was divided between the three brothers, with Leon going to Garcia, Galicia to Ordoño, and the Asturias to Fruela, since all three brothers participated in the dethroning of their father. But these divisions were probably not all nice and neat. As suggested by medieval Arab historian Ibn Hayyan, he states that Ordoño was at war with Garcia at the time of Garcia's death, which incidentally must have happened after Ordoño's successful attack on the future Portuguese city of Avura on August 20th, 913, in which the Umayyad governor, Abdal Malik, was killed. Then again, we also have no idea if Ordoño was recognized as king in all of Galicia. The very few surviving royal documents simply refer to him as Rex, or king, without any ethnic or territorial definitions, such as of Galicia or of the Galicians which was pretty typical for the time. So this suggests that he lacked universal support in Galicia. There are inconsistent accounts of the death of King Garcia. The Chronicle of San Pedro says that after reigning for three years and one month, he died of illness in the city of Zamora. But our 14th century Moroccan historian, Ibn Idhari, reports that he was killed in a battle while leading a raid near Arnedo on March 19, 914. However and whenever it may have happened, when Garcia I of Leon died, he had no known heirs. So thus, it was Ordoño II who succeeded him, reuniting Galicia and Leon. While the battles of succession in the north still remained confined to the descendants of Pelagius and Alfonso I, the rights of primogeniture 
or that of the firstborn son, were not guaranteed. As mentioned in previous episodes, the northern kingdoms still held on to the old Visigothic constitutional feature of election to the kingship by members of the aristocracy with the right to be involved in kingmaking. And one of the sad aspects of how poor our Latin sources are is that we really don't know the details of this process, nor how widely it was practiced. But even though our sources don't spell out the details, we have plenty of evidence for interdynastic conflict between all of the rival royal cousins whenever the ruling monarch died, which backs up the idea that the sons of the previous king were not seen as the only legitimate successors. It seems like anyone who was close enough to the royal line could be regarded as potential candidates for the throne. So the way this game was being played was that whenever the monarch died, it was seen as a golden opportunity for the various groups of nobles to augment their own regional power. And they accomplished this by backing and using legitimate extended royal family members as the centerpiece of their place for power. There doesn't seem to have been any opposition to Ordoño II inheriting the Kingdom of Leon in 914. However, 10 years later on his death in 924, the crown was not passed down to any of his four sons. Instead, the crown was passed to his brother, Fruella II. And according to Ibn Khaldun, his wife Uraka was the daughter of the governor of Tudela and a member of the Benukasi. Fruella II was only destined to be king for one year. And one of the very few things we know about his year in power is that upon ascending the throne, he immediately had his two first cousins killed. It seems like this execution was widely viewed as unjust, so when Fruella died shortly after from leprosy, it was seen as divine punishment for his transgressions. Now, Fruella's son, Alfonso, who I will refer to as Cousin Alfonso, may have briefly succeeded his father, but if so, he was immediately confronted by the sons of Ordoño II and ejected from Leon. And this is where things get even more interesting, because according to the contemporary Muslim Cordoban historian Isa Alvasi, a civil war broke out in the north because of this, and this civil war is entirely omitted in the Latin sources. According to Isa Alvasi, Sancho who was the eldest son of Ordoño II, just rolled up and took over Leon. But his younger brother, also named Alfonso, and we'll refer to him as Alfonso, son of Ordoño, didn't take kindly to this and decided to fight for the throne. He was backed up by a portion of the Leonese nobility and his father-in-law, King Sancho Garcia I of Pamplona. There was a battle where Alfonso, son of Ordoño, was resoundingly defeated and forced to flee to Astarga, where he made an alliance with none other than cousin Alfonso, the eldest son of Fruella II. Confused yet? With their combined resources, they were able to launch an offensive that expelled Sancho from Leon. Sancho, 
subsequently established himself as king of Galicia, where he ruled for a couple of years, until he died on August 929. We are not given any details concerning his death. So now, Alfonso, son of Ordoño, officially becomes Alfonso IV. Alfonso IV's reign isn't well recorded, except for its last few years, but of course there are gaps and inconsistencies. Our Latin source, the Chronicle of Sampiru, states that for some unspecified reason, Alfonso IV decided to give up the crown in order to become a monk. So he sends a message to his younger brother, Hamidu, announcing his decision to abdicate the throne and dedicate his life to Christ. Upon receiving the news, Hamidu then set out for Zamora to meet up with the royal army, which was in the process of preparing for a military expedition to go raiding an Arab country. But as soon as Hamidu arrived in Zamora, he was told that his brother had seized control of Leon. Okay, so he immediately marched his army north, besieged and took the city and apprehended Alfonso. He then followed us up by leading his forces into the Asturias, where he took prisoner the three sons of his uncle, Fruala II, and subsequently he had all three of them, along with his younger brother, the former King Alfonso IV, blinded in a single day. So that's what the Chronicle tells us. Fortunately, our Muslim source, Al-Dasi, also chronicled these events. According to him, Hamidu succeeded Sancho in Galicia, and he agrees with Sampiru in stating that Alfonso decided to abdicate to his brother and to, quote, enter one of their venerated monasteries, unquote. However, he also states that after the abdication, Alfonso was convinced by the enemies of Hamidu to regain power, and apparently included among these enemies were a faction referred to as the Castilians. This little meeting happened in early 932, while Ramiro was in Zamora, preparing his forces for a campaign into, quote, the lands of the Muslims, which most likely was an expedition to Toledo, whose rebel governor had asked for help against Abdallah's successor, Abdallahman III. Alfonso then seized Leon, and Isa Althasi tells us that a certain Fernando Ansures and the Benu Gomez backed Alfonso's revolt and defeated forces loyal to Ramiro with terrible casualties on both sides. Fernando had actually been appointed by Alfonso IV as Count of Castile in 929, and the Benu Gomez were the sons of a powerful frontier lord in the south of Leon, Gomez, Count of Carrion. However, all the support was pretty fickle, because as soon as they sensed the wind turning, they all abandoned Alfonso, and the Benu Gomez wasted no time in allying themselves with Ramiro. When Leon fell, Alfonso IV took refuge in a convent, but he was soon discovered and imprisoned, before being blinded along with the three sons of Fruella and several unidentified other cousins. This, we are told, was done so that Hamidu could rule, quote, securely and without competitors, unquote. Alfonso IV was then imprisoned in a Leonese monastery, along with the sons of Ruella II, 
and he most likely died soon after. But he did leave behind two infant sons, conveniently named Ordoño and Fruela. So, when I first read this account by Althasi, I thought to myself, well, we finally have pretty much the same story told by two different sources from two different places. This must mean that both accounts are pretty reliable, since they agree with each other, right? But historian Roger Collins says, not so fast. Quote, The striking similarities between the accounts of these events, to be found both in Althasi and in the Chronicle of Sampiro, suggests the possibility of a common source, all the more so when it is recognized how unusual it was for the Arab historian to include so detailed a narrative of what had taken place in the Christian kingdom. This makes it harder to reach behind these sources to detect what may have actually have been happening. We are receiving what may have been the official version, one aimed primarily at justifying Hamidu's coming to power. For him to have been given the throne by his brothers removes the suggestion of usurpation, the threat of which to himself he later so ruthlessly removed by the mutilation of so many of his relatives. So, it is possible to suggest, but not to prove, that Alfonso IV was replaced by some kind of coup, which he later tried unsuccessfully to reverse." Unquote. Once securely on the throne, Hamidu II actually showed himself to be one of the most effective Leonese monarchs. The Chronicle of Sampiru tells us of several successful expeditions launched by Hamidu. Apparently, he was able to intercept an Umayyad force that was on its way to attack Castile. We are told that this victory was followed up by a fruitful expedition into the Ebro Valley, leading to the governor of Zaragoza, whom the chronicle names as Abu Haya, to submit himself to the authority of King Ramiro. However, Abu Haya immediately switched his allegiance back to the Umayyad regime once Ramiro returned to Lyon and Abdallahman showed up at the doorstep of his kingdom with an enormous army. This army, however, was defeated in spectacular fashion by the Christian forces in the battle at Simancas, with most of the Muslim troops being slaughtered as they fled, and Abdallahman is described as only escaping half alive. Meanwhile, the deceitful Abu Haya was captured and, quote, by the right judgment of God, unquote, condemned to slavery in Leon. Abdallahman's camp was thoroughly looted with, quote, gold, silver, and precious vestments, unquote, being taken. The chronicle then concludes this episode with King Hamiru, quote, returned home, now secure in peace and with a great victory, unquote. Our Arab sources, which at this point consists of Ibn Hayyan's quotations from the history of Isa al-Thasi, paint a different and more detailed picture of these events. According to them, a battle was fought over the course of several days near Osma and resulted in a victory for Abdallahman III, who was leading his army in person. The guy the Chronicle of Sampiru refers to as Abu Haya was actually Muhammad bin Hashim al-Tujibi, whom at this point was acting as an independent entity from that of the government of al-Andalus which of course was unacceptable to Abdallahman III. 
who then threatened Al-Tujibi with force of arms. Al-Tujibi was rightfully intimidated by the forces of Cordoba, so he entered into an alliance with Hamidu II. But in the end, he was forced to surrender Zaragoza to Abdelrahman in 937. So we can see here the difference between St. Peter's Chronicle and Isa Althasi's description of the dynamics between the Leonese king and the Tujibi warlord. But fortunately, there is agreement in the sources on one thing, and that is the outcome of the Battle of Simancas as a serious defeat for Abdelrahman, whose own personal Quran and other valuables were lost in the course of the retreat. Back in Al-Andalus, preparations were being made in Córdoba for a new punitive expedition to be launched north, but Khamiru sent delegates south to propose a truce. Once the negotiations were concluded, a full peace treaty was established. Amongst the conditions agreed upon was the release of Altujibi, but most importantly, the terms included a stipulation that allowed Hamidu to continue the resettlement and development of the lands on both sides of the Dodu River. This included towns in the southern Meseta that had been either largely abandoned or were well beyond the power of the Leonese monarchs to control. Many of the towns listed in the Chronicle are sites that are in the valley of the river Tormes, thus making that river the new frontier zone beyond the Dodu River. As with any major territorial changes, there are always winners and losers in the deal, which of course sparked feuds between the aristocratic winners and losers. This is especially true of the nobles who had little influence in court and who received less favorable treatment by the monarch. You see, if you were not within the inner circles of the king's court, you probably were not going to be granted any of these new territories. So, one of the ways you could agitate for change was to go into open revolt. Which is exactly what happened in 944, when Count Diego of Saldana and Count Fernan González of Castile rebelled against Hamidu II. Now, we don't have any description of this revolt, but it was quickly suppressed and the two rebel counts were imprisoned. But apparently, the supporters of the counts back in their old domains and at court did not take kindly to this and made their displeasure known. So within a year, both Fernan and Diego were restored to their previous positions. This incident is a great example of the political reality of the time that I've touched upon in previous episodes, but which we can expand upon now. As is well evident here, royal authority in this period had major constraints. Even though the king had the highest status among the nobles, his ability to command depended upon a mixture of his own personal qualities and the degree of consensus he could muster among the regional aristocracy of his realms. You gotta remember that this is a time when standing armies were a rarity. So a king's ability to coerce was hamstrung by the lack of standing forces under his direct control. He was highly dependent on the support of the nobility upon whose collective manpower he relied upon. The monarch required the willing cooperation of the aristocracy against internal discontent as much as against external threats. 
and punishments dealt out by the ruler had to be seen as fair and appropriate if his justice was to be respected. Furthermore, if the aristocracy felt that the rebels had some valid points behind their insurrection, however unwisely they may have acted, then an astute monarch would find it sensible to show mercy. He would also strive to cleverly mix punishment with reward. The nobility was well aware that cultivation of royal favor was the pathway to profit. So those that were excluded from it could and did resort to violence to send a signal that their interests needed to be taken seriously. And if ignored, they could just rally around one of the many royal brothers or cousins that vied for the throne and potentially install a monarch that was now in their debt for their help in attaining the throne. That being said, it was obviously impossible to keep everyone happy. So the trick was to keep enough of the nobility satisfied to maintain a sufficient amount of regional support for the monarch. There was also another powerful group besides the regional aristocracy that had to be accounted for in these complex political calculations. And that was the church. All the most powerful Leonese and Castilian noble dynasties were monastic founders and patrons. Moreover, these dynasties had many family ties to the kingdom's clergy and their churches. As you may be aware, since they had limited inheritance rights, it was common practice for noble families to install their second and third sons into influential positions of the church hierarchy. At this point, cathedral churches and their monasteries were becoming significant landowners, thanks to the flow of land donations from the aristocracy, basically making them territorial magnates in their own right. And it makes sense. If you were a regional noble and you wanted to make sure that a certain bit of territory stayed within the family, a smart play was to donate it to a monastery that was run by your son or another relative it had the added benefit of becoming legally invulnerable to annexation by the crown or any other secular power, since it was now property of the church. At least in theory. All of this to say that bishops and abbots were yet another powerful interest group upon whose continuing support a successful king depended upon. And since said abbots and bishops were drawn from the aristocracy, their feelings about the way their homies had been treated by the king were another serious factor in all political equations. So it was very much in the interest of the crown to be a major church patron, and Hamidu II seems to have been well aware of this. He founded a monastery dedicated to the Holy Savior next to the royal palace in Leon, which became the dynastic burial place. He is also said to have founded three rural monasteries, and the foundation of church institutions in the territories of regional nobility was yet another way in which the monarch could extend his influence, since they could be powerful centers of political loyalty to the monarch, entrenched in the lands of his rivals, as well as supporters. Okay, now back to the story, so where were we? Ah, yes. A peace treaty had been signed between Khamidu and Abdalahman. So, naturally, war with Al-Andalus resumed before the ink used to sign the peace treaty even had a chance to dry. 
It began in 942 as a proxy war, as the restored Altujibi of Zaragoza began deploying Turkish slave soldiers supplied from Cordoba against Hamidu's ally, the King of Navarre. And in response, Hamidu sent military forces to aid Navarre. Sadly though, this is about as much as we know. Our major source for this time period, the history of Ibn Hayyan, abruptly ends that year, since his account of the last decades of Abdullahman's reign is missing. So we have to rely on the Chronicle of Sampiru, which doesn't even come close to offering the same level of detail. The Chronicle only states that in the last year of his reign, Hamiru launched a raid south of the Sierra Guademara against Talavera, where it makes the very dubious claim that he killed 12,000 of the enemy and captured another 7,000 as prisoner. That winter, he made his way to Oviedo. While there, he fell ill, and he must have known that he wasn't going to recover from it, insisting on returning to Leon to die, which he did. He was 50 years old and had ruled what was now being called the Kingdom of Leon for 20 years. Interestingly, he was buried in a sarcophagus in the cemetery next to the Church of San Salvador, rather than in the church itself, as was common practice throughout Europe. Hamidu's death obviously brings into focus the question of succession, and this case was a bit complicated, so we need to get into some cultural context that will inform the events of the coming years. Royal remarriages, like successions, were always a potential source of factional conflict, whether or not they produced any offspring. See, the incoming family of the new queen would often acquire status and access to power. This addition of a whole new clan into the highest reaches of power had the effect of disrupting the existing alliances and could drastically change the political complexion of the court. Hamidu's father, Ordoingu II, had remarried twice near the end of his reign, and both wives had belonged to powerful Galician aristocratic families. But for reasons which are not explained to us, he preferred instead to confirm a new alliance with Navarre through a third marriage, this time to Sancha, daughter of King Sancho of Pamplona, and never mind that church law forbade third marriages. Now, traditional Visigothic ecclesiastical legislation, which as we know these guys were big fans of, required that widowed or repudiated queens to retire into convents for the rest of their days. This was done in order to eliminate the queen and by extension her family of becoming anything like yet another faction for nobles to rally around. However, that was Visigothic tradition that the Asturian kings and their successors chose to adopt. The royal practice in Navarre, which is Basque country, was different, and Sancha Sanchez remarried twice after the death of Ordoño II. And another example of the conflicts created by remarriage is that of Hamidu II, who had two wives and left two sons by each queen. And next time, we will jump back into the game of musical chairs that is the royal succession and find out just who will come out on top when the music stops.
Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 